I had the great good fortune to be part of a pilgrimage in India called the Way of the Buddha in India and Nepal, teaching along the way um, with a group of people, all of us on pilgrimage together. And one of the places that we visited was Sarnath, India, the Deer Park in Sarnath, where the Buddha gave his first discourse a couple of months after he was enlightened. And one of the things he said in this first discourse was that I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha taught us that suffering is intrinsic to the human condition or actually that until we wake up to the true nature of life, the true nature of ourself, that suffering is intrinsic to the human condition. So when the Buddha said that I teach suffering, um, it wasn't as though he was sort of Uh, giving a recommendation for suffering. (laughs) But he was pointing out to us its existence and that until we look at it honestly, until we look at it directly, at this reality in our life, experience in our life, we aren't going to be able to um, take the necessary steps, one of which is looking at it in order to free ourselves from it. One of the most subtle and I think most pervasive aspects of suffering is the suffering that we experience when we ignore the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, all of our experience, our body, our mind, all comes into existence, all comes into being through a combination of many, many different conditions. Where I live in Taos, New Mexico, quite high altitude in the mountains, there are many, um, many rainbows. And I happen to have the good fortune of living in a place where I can see them quite clearly, the whole arc of them, and often double rainbows from their end to end. And they're wonderful, beautiful, and I really enjoy them. And they come together, they come to be, they come into existence because of a whole multitude of conditions. The moisture in the atmosphere, the the way the light touches the moisture, and of course my being in the right place at the right time to partake of these rainbows. And they change so quickly. They disappear, they dissolve very, very quickly. Everything in life, including ourself, is really like a rainbow, a changing set of conditions 
that are totally interconnected, interrelated, and in that sense, empty in themselves, of themselves. It's very obvious with rainbows as I watch them coming, manifesting, and disappearing. But it's not so obvious for us with our more solidly appearing body, mind, all the phenomena of our experience, physical, mental experience, our, so to say, rainbow body, our rainbow mind. The suffering that we experience in trying to grasp onto some appearing thing or experience or phenomena and our trying to solidify it in our mind as alone, all by itself, unchanging entity or idea or opinion or belief. If we do this, it will inevitably bring suffering to us. The way of things, the natural way of things, the natural law and order of things, the unfolding of life as it is, will inevitably get in the way, will frustrate our efforts to grasp on, to solidify this and that. When our pilgrimage um, was in Sarnath, in, in the Deer Park last winter, and I was to give a Dharma talk there one afternoon. I told um, my friend, who was one of the coordinators of the trip, that I was going to give a talk on suffering. And she looked at me with great wide eyes and just a little bit of a smile on her face and said, Who, me? (laughs) And then we both laughed. We can't be free of something that we don't see. In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance isn't bliss, ignorance is ignorance. With ignorance providing the fertile ground for delusion to sprout. But fortunately for us, ignorance and delusion are only impermanent, conditioned states of suffering, not our true nature. They're one of the hues of the rainbow. As we gently and compassionately begin opening the eye of mindfulness, we begin to see all of the hues of the rainbow of our experience, of ourself, of our body, mind, including the darkness in the rainbow. And we can begin to call it as the writer May Sarton says, seasonal, not harsh or strange. And from another source, um, Dolly Parton, (laughs) she, You never know where you're going to get your Dharma next Dharma lesson from. (laughs) She says, if you want to be a rainbow, you have to put up with the rain. (laughs) This evening, I'd like to explore with you some of the faces of aversion and desire. Towards the end of the Buddha's long night of sitting under the Bodhi tree, 
And after Mara, who is the personification of all of the dark, potentially obstructive forces in the mind, after Mara had let fly at the Buddha, all of the arrows, poison arrows of delusion, of aversion, of desire, all of the arrows of distraction, none of which stuck. He finally shot the last arrow at Siddhartha, hoping that this one would really stick in deeply and firmly. The last poison arrow of doubt, the arrow of self-doubt, saying to the Buddha, what makes you think that you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? And the about-to-be Buddha, with his deep confidence, his lion-like fearlessness, and his amazing grace, He simply reached down and with the fingertips of his right hand touched the earth, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And at that moment Mara was defeated, never, never again to return to the Buddha. And it's our right, just the same as it was for that human being. It's our right to be sitting where and how we are. Simply because we're alive, simply because we're here, it's our right. In the Buddhist teachings, it's understood that the last thing to go is what's called conceit. And in this understanding, conceit means the identification, self-identification with being better than or the self-identification with being less than, not good enough. The Buddha said that the self, it is the self by which we suffer. This experience of self-doubt that was the last arrow shot to the Buddha is something that we, many of us, often experience with various flavors and tastes of it. The roots of the contraction of doubt are very often based in fear, fear disguised as doubt. We feel, we have the experience that We won't open. We can't open. We won't attend to. We can't be with. Sometimes we feel kind of frozen. We feel contracted. We may feel lost, confused. We may feel caught. We may have this sense of not being able to take another step. And sometimes these experiences, they're learned, conditioned experiences, and sometimes they're learned in relationship to past experience in our life as a way of protecting ourselves. And at that point, it's probably quite skillfully, a skillful means for us. But we outgrow it. But it's a habit that we've learned. We learn these habits quite well, quite deeply. 
And we begin to see these things and realize that we've actually outgrown it. It's really not serving us so well anymore. Sometimes before we begin to see it clearly, we may engage in doubt in the way of blaming. We may blame ourselves. We may blame a situation. We may blame another person. The blaming of ourself, that manifestation of doubt, of not being good enough, of not being okay, of not being worthy, all of the ways that we take that up is probably one of the most painful experiences of our humanness. But as we practice, we do begin to see through this particular hue of the rainbow. And we actually begin to open to the fear that's underneath. Slowly, gently, with a compassionate heart. And we go back and forth with this, in and out of it. Sometimes we're afraid of the fear. We're afraid to look direct, look at it directly in the eye, so to say. And maybe especially if we've taken a peek and it's maybe not been so easy. And in the past, we may not have had any avenue for reflection, an avenue of where that would be helpful for us in these difficult times. It is true that we do have to do it ourselves. We do have to go the way ourselves. But for most of us, it's really important and very helpful to have some strong, clear, reflective help along the way. A spiritual friend, the practice itself. Being with fear isn't easy. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, sometimes we protect ourselves from it with doubt. And sometimes it may be skillful and sometimes it's not. It becomes in our way. If we get caught in doubt and take it as our primary relationship to our practice, our primary relationship to our life, we're actually then living in and out of fear. As we get stronger and stronger through seeing more and more clearly with a very patient, very compassionate heart for ourself, we can begin to open to fear. We can begin to be not so bound, not so imprisoned by fear, not so shut off to the unknown, not so shut off to the incredible vastness of possibility. As we get stronger through seeing more clearly, we begin to be able to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that we're not a fearful person. Know that it's It's, there it is again, okay. (laughs) Know that it's not solid. Know that it comes and goes and comes and goes. Begin to know that fear is one of the hues of the rainbow. It comes and goes. It doesn't need to take us over. And so we begin to 
lose the fear of fear itself and begin to look it in the eye, so to say. This is a short piece from the Native American author Scott Mamaday. Botali rode easily among his enemies. Once, twice, three and four times. And all who saw him were amazed, for he was utterly without fear. So it seemed. But afterwards he said, Certainly I was afraid. I was afraid of the fear in the eyes of my enemies. And this is a piece from uh, a book called The Fate of the Elephant. We came upon a young male lion with two lionesses. They were working their way toward a Maasai and his herd of cattle. As they drew closer, they began to belly along through the grass, then crouch to eye the cattle. The young male started growling. His tail switched with excitement. He half rose to coil for a running start several times. We'd better help that man, I said. No, Tim said firmly. He knows the lions are there. This is for him to do. He would not want us to interfere. The herder stood staring straight at the cats and slowly raised his spear to a throwing position without once moving his gaze away. From a distance, other herders who had noticed the man's posture drew nearer to watch the standoff, but not too near. They too thought that this was for him to do. This was what he had been trained to do as a herder. Each time the male lion growled and poised itself, the man would shake his spear and spread his stance a bit. Each time the cat was still, the man was still, matching the animal's steadfast, golden-eyed stare. The standoff continued for a quarter of an hour. At last the lions crouched away into a line of thorn scrub. Had the herder communicated the slightest hesitation or fear, I think they would have gone for his cattle in a flash. If these youngish lions hadn't known much about the Maasai when they started, they knew something now, and it might help them survive among people in the future. A very dear friend of mine and Dharma brother is HIV positive. He talks about the virus being his friend, his ally, he calls it, in awakening. The virus is his inspiration to wake up and live, to really, really live right now, moment to moment, in and out of some very difficult experience and a deep and growing understanding of the truth. Someone once asked him that um, if they found a cure for AIDS, would he want it since the the disease is such an important part of his practice? And he said that um, he would probably be one of the first ones to get there, to get cured. And then he went on to say that maybe by that time he would be close or close to finishing uh, his spiritual work and he'd just sit back with his feet up and be happy. A Dharma friend and student in our Taos Sangha died this past January of AIDS. I had the privilege and honor of um, spending a part of the last of his last few months 
on this earth with him, practicing. The thing that he wanted to do most was practice. So we sat together over and over and over again. I wasn't in Taos for the last two weeks of his life, but I understand from those that were that it was a great gift to be with him during this time. His practice flowered, his practice fruited, and he died um, with a great deal of clarity and openness. It was a great teaching, as I'm told, from those that were with him. During his last year, he was a writer, and during his last year he wrote a number of things, and in one of the articles that he wrote, he said that um, AIDS is not my condition, it's the human condition. It's the gift that has taught me about impermanence. Both of these friends inspired urgency is actually the truth of each of our lives. We certainly don't know when our death will happen, but we can be certain that it will happen, and at any moment it might happen, it will happen. And both of these friends lived and live with this reality every day. The body informed and informs them, their body, heart, mind, of each of them have touched very deeply the experiences of anger, of fear, of hatred, sadness, aversion. I received a letter from the friend who's still quite alive. Uh, I received a letter quite recently from him, and he, in the letter he said that although it's been a year of difficult physical challenge, it's been the happiest year of his life, and he attributes it to the practice and his ongoing depth and practice. Each one of us, every single one of us, knows all of the various faces of aversion. As we begin to investigate these emotional states of mind, and we begin to see them clearly, we begin to really know that they're based on our dislike of some aspect of our experience. We often experience anger or irritation towards some object that's present with us in the moment, object of body, object of mind, or towards one that's far away. And sometimes we experience great anger or great fear over past events that are long gone and that we can't do anything about anymore. They're finished, they've happened. And amazingly, we can get enraged or terrified about something that hasn't happened yet, that we only imagine might happen. There's a story about um, a monk who lived in a cave who was quite a wonderful artist And he spent quite some time painting a tiger on the wall of his cave. And after he finished it, very realistic painting of this tiger, he sat and he looked at the painting. And he became so frightened of his painted tiger 
that he scared himself to death. We do that in our own way, I think, often. (laughs) Doubt, fear, anger can color our entire experience at any given moment. It seems like nothing, nobody is right. Nothing's okay. When we're swept away in these states of mind, one of the things we also experience often is that there's a great deal of restlessness in the body, a great deal of restlessness in the mind. Very difficult to get concentrated. Very difficult to mindfully explore the experience of the present moment with this spirit of discovery. To practice, to understand, we need to develop the capacity to come close to our experience, to come very close and investigate our experience without pushing it away, without pulling away from it without desiring it to be different. So it's important to learn how to work with these states of mind, states of body, when they're present in our field of experience, so that they're not merely hindrances to our spiritual practice and growth. In the classical uh, teachings, anger is described like a pond on top of a boiling hot spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Judging or Suppressing or repressing difficult emotional states doesn't work. It blocks our sensitivities, it deadens our sensitivities and our awareness. And if we, of course, act out our difficult emotions, we actually strengthen then the strengthen and reinforce the habits of them. We strengthen our particular patterns around them. We water the seeds of our habit patterns. And we can also, of course, cause a great deal of suffering to ourselves and others acting out of great anger or great fear. The most direct way to work with these states, these difficult states, emotional states, is to be mindful of them, to make them the object of our meditation practice when they arise. These very powerful energies can become another aspect of our growing, deepening mindfulness. Practicing, working with these forces, these energies, can actually become a source of energy and insight for us. We can begin to directly observe anger, fear, irritation, strong desire, doubt, and begin to understand how they work, how they operate, their laws, how they work in the body, in the mind. Struggling with them, fighting with them, trying to overcome them in that way actually perpetuates them. I call it, it's like Velcro practice. You keep getting stuck and stuck. Mindfulness is an amazing tool 
and sometimes seemingly like magic. It's a great, great protection. With a mindful attention, with a mindful awareness, we can allow these strong energies to be our teacher. We can actually learn to experience the extremes of these energies or the not-so-extremes of these energies without getting caught up in them, without getting swept away and overcome by them. I'd like to um, share two poems, one after the other, in relation to these strong energies. The first is by David White, called The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. And the second poem by Galway Canal is called Crying. Crying only a little bit is no use. You must cry until your pillow is soaked. Then you can get up and laugh. Then you can jump in the shower and splash, splash, splash. Then you can throw open your window and ha, 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 ha. And if people say, hey, what's going on up there? Ha, ha, sing back. Happiness was hiding in the last tear. I wept it. Ha, ha. The glimmering small round coins. In the seeming magic of mindfulness, in this paying a kind of extraordinary attention, uh, non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, orientation to the present moment, this mindful attention to our experience of body and mind. There's the possibility at any moment for the transformation of the energies of fear, anger, desire. Transformation into the liberated energies of compassion and wisdom. Anger without the contracted, self-centered quality inherent in anger, transforming into a mirror-like wisdom. Desire, the mind of wanting, the mind of attachment and grasping, becoming the wisdom of discriminating awareness, clear discriminating awareness. The energies of arrogance and self-recrimination, both of these energies based in fear that keep us bound and caught, can become the wisdom of equality. This is a poem by Wendell Berry. 
I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me, like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives for a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. When these so-called hindrances, these strong energies, are particularly strong in any moment in our life, in our practice, there's another way of working with them that's also very helpful. We can learn to cultivate their opposite states as a balance or as a remedy practicing metta, practicing compassion, the Brahma-vihara practices. By learning to do this, we weaken these emotional states. We begin to unhook ourselves from being caught by them. If these energies are weaker, if they happen less often, we can more easily be with them mindfully then. Unconditional love, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. Fear and anger and strong desire can't exist in the same moment as any of the Brahma-vihara states of mind. They cannot exist simultaneously. The more moments of unconditional care and compassion, the less moments of fear, anger, strong desire. Another short poem by Rilke. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us once beautiful and brave. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something that needs love. There's another way also to practice with these strong states, these strong energies. When our concentration and mindfulness is strong and clear, it's possible to simply let go of these states when they arise. There's no layer of aversion on top at this point. It's just a direct and spontaneous choice in the moment to let go, abandon the state, and redirect the attention to another object such as the breath or a state of calm or open to a boundless, choiceless awareness. If our mindfulness isn't clear and strong, 
we can get quite confused, actually, if we use this way of practicing with difficult states of mind. We often may be averse to or judging the particular state of mind. And maybe even judging ourselves for having it. And this creates a kind of getting rid of attitude or relationship to what's happening. Rather than just a very clear, unattached, disidentified, mindful observation of the arising state. And then the clear choice to abandon fear or anger or desire. So it's very, very necessary, very important to develop strong, clear mindfulness so that we aren't continuing to perpetuate delusion. Looking mindfully at sleepiness, for instance, or restlessness, doubt, fear, anger, desire, when they arise. And observing any of them as we have observed the breath or sound or body sensations. The possibility of giving a clear, full attention. How does it feel in the body? What parts of the body are affected? What precisely are the sensations? How does it feel in the heart? How does it feel in the mind? Are we at ease? Are we agitated? Are we open? Are we contracted? And then watching to see what happens. All of these difficult states of mind in our practice, in our life, have the possibility of being very strong teachers for us. The light of awareness. It's kind of like tonight's full moon as it shines in the sky with its clear reflection in every drop of water on the earth. The heart-mind of wisdom and compassion that grows and deepens with mindful awareness, with a mindful attention, shines the light of itself on all the hues of our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, this rainbow life. I'd like to look with you a little bit at desire, grasping, clinging, attachment. These experiences, these states of mind that often define what we think we need in order to be contented, to be at ease in our life. Very often we live our life projecting all of our hopes and our dreams, our fantasies, our imaginations of fulfillment, of ease onto some thing or person or object or some possible future. In the classical teachings, desire in the mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We can't see the bottom of the pond anymore. We can't see clearly.
strong desire. Creates a kind of separation, a divisiveness. And it makes for a cloudiness in our heart, our mind. And often, very quickly, there's a clinging, an attachment that arises. Desire is a very natural human experience. We all experience it. It has its skillful aspects. It's what brought us probably brought us here, some aspect of desire. If we, though, very unconsciously um, just follow along our desires, uh, be led by them, so to say, um, often we end up suffering. We end up hurting ourselves, hurting someone else. And we can become very dependent on um, having certain objects in our life, objects of our desire, um, and wanting them to stay the same, hoping that they'll stay the same, uh, and spend a tremendous amount of time uh, trying to make them stay the same, or when they're changing, as they inevitably do, to recreate the experience or... Um, try to replace it and take up an enormous amount of our time and energy with that. Missing the moment. Missing life, in a sense. Missing what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life. And we very often think that the satisfaction of this or that particular a wish, desire, will give us something, in fact, that it can't, that it doesn't, some kind of sustaining, ongoing sense of um, ease, satisfaction. It's a moment of pleasure. I think there's a, a question that We can ask ourselves every now and then, that's really helpful. How driven are we by our desires? I'd like to give you a sort of scenario, uh, example, um, with pleasant experience. I really love the smell of flowers. I smell them whenever I can. Um, In the moment of the experience, of pleasant experience, for instance, the smell, this really beautiful, wonderful, sweet smell of a flower, In that moment, it's pleasant. We may find ourselves in the next moment, if we're really paying attention, leaning into or leaning towards the object of our pleasant experience with what is actually a subtle, or maybe not so subtle, tension. A kind of yearning, a kind of grasping feeling begins to come up. And sometimes we mistakenly perceive this feeling, this tension, as pleasant. It happens very, very quickly in relation to pleasant experience. And it's a very deep, pervasive habit for most of us. And we're most often, or very often, not clear in what's actually happening in our relationship to the experience until we begin to see it clearly. So the experience of the sweetness of the flower's smell, it's already over. 
but we're, I'm speaking of myself in this because I've experienced this many times. It's already over, and um, I'm still grasping onto it, the memory of it, clinging to it, wanting it back, or wanting it again, or wanting more of it, imagining it, fantasizing it. So what was just a moment ago, a moment of pleasantness, is no longer pleasant. I'm caught in this grip uh, of my own habitual, wanting, attached mind to this pleasant experience. As we actually begin to see, to experience attachment, grasping, we do find out that we're experiencing a kind of tension, a kind of stress, And this is suffering. There's a confusion, uh, a delusion, that this yearning, this state of desire that we live in and out of, this attachment, feels good until we actually begin to see it clearly. The Buddha described suffering, the suffering of desire, as a burning, the burning of attachment. How prevalent, how pervasive is this in our life? Mindfulness is like magic, not the magic that magician creates, the magic of illusion and that pulls us into the illusion, but the magic of mindfulness actually takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, directly into reality. Seeing clearly being so present in the moment without grasping onto experience is really about letting the great undoing, unwinding begin to begin, allowing this to begin, the undoing of our karmic predicaments, the conditioned filters through which we suffer. It's about resting in the deep silence, the boundless, deep spaciousness, and paying attention, an extraordinary kind of attention, and letting life live through us. Often in the midst of extreme situations, extreme experience, either extremely wonderful and beautiful or extremely difficult, we may be acutely present, very clearly aware. Our mental faculties and physical faculties truly in the present with nothing of the past or nothing of the future clouding that moment. In the extremes of beautiful experience, wonderful experience, like the first time we fall in love or seeing a beautiful sunset, in the midst of very intense experience, sexual experience, the experience of athletic competition, or in the midst of extremely difficult experience, such as extreme illness, physical pain, or when someone very close to us, our child or our partner, parent, is hurt or ill and suffering greatly. In these extremes, we're often 
present. This We like extremes, actually. I think that we're kind of addicted to extreme experiences because they very often bring us right into the present moment. I think that's why we're addicted to them. We're right there, and that's power of that moment of experience. Can we be so acutely present in the moments of our ordinary lives, our more everyday extremes, waking up in the morning out of sleep, eating a meal, all the changes that our body and mind goes through in the process of eating, having a cold, taking a bath, getting old, the beginning, the middle, and the end of a breath. Can we be acutely present? Can we be free in the midst of our ordinary extremes, the ordinary extremes of our everyday experience? Can we be so alive at any given moment, just simply present and not holding on to some imagined, elaborated, or wished-for experience? Can we be so present, which actually translates to being alive, fully alive? In any moment, one clear moment of mindful presence, in that moment, there's the possibility of the deepest, clearest wisdom arising. The magic of mindfulness takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, directly into reality, the reality of the freedom from suffering. like to end with um, a poem called Hokusai Says by Roger Keyes. Hokusai is the Japanese painter who painted the quite famous painting of the big wave that maybe some of you are familiar with. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. (laughs) He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says everything is alive. Shells, building, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says live with the world inside you. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Let's just be quiet for a moment or two together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.